Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This evening, the program And the Road takes us to Schlieve-Lucra, a region located around the River Blackwater on the Corkerry border. I'm in an area known as Dlaunamukla, which is approximately 10 miles from Newmarket. Schlieve-Lucra is, of course, the home of traditional music, song, dance and poetry. Musicians from here include the likes of Julia Clifford, Johnny O'Leary and Jackie Daly. But it's not music that brings us here this evening. It's what possibly is the conclusion to one of the most intriguing stories I have ever covered on radio. The story of the Glaunamukla footprints. The story was first mentioned to me by the late Johnny O'Mahony of Turin Dove, who pointed me in the direction of the man who had researched the story for over 40 years. We first brought you that story on Where the Road Takes Me a number of years ago, and in a later edition, we updated it. But this evening, we bring you the conclusion, which just adds more intrigue to the story itself, but also highlights the power of predictions of a famous priest of times gone by. Good evening and welcome to the programme, and do step right in. Between 7 and 8 o'clock, on a summer's morning, on July 28, 1888, a labourer by the name of James Rourke arrived at a farm in Dlaunamukla in the parish of Newmarket. James Rourke was well able to handle a scythe. As a result, he was in constant demand by farmers not only in Cork, but also in neighbouring County Limerick. On this particular morning, Rourke had been hired to cut hay on a farm, the property of David McAuliffe. Rourke had previously worked for another farmer, Patrick Toomey, who was not very popular in the area. Rourke had previously received a number of warnings not to work for Toomey, but he had received those warnings in the past, had ignored them, and lived to tell the tale. Because he had a young family to care for, he was in no position to turn down work. However, his decision to disregard these latest warnings would prove to be his undoing on this fateful July morning in the year of 1888. Before we get the conclusion, let's go back some years now and hear how we brought you the original programme, the story of the footprints of Dlaunabukla.
McAuliffe was already in the field when Rourke arrived, and the job of cutting the hay by scythe began immediately. It is important to stress that McAuliffe, or his farm, was not boycotted. In fact, his farm was chosen because he had never come to anybody's attention. Shortly after the work began, a disguised and armed individual appeared on a ditch by the edge of the field and ordered the men to identify themselves. McAuliffe gave his name, but Rourke chose to give the name of a John Fleming, who was a neighbouring farmer. The armed man on the ditch fired both rounds of a shotgun into Rourke and then proceeded to empty the contents of a revolver into the badly wounded man. Rourke died a few short hours later. McAuliffe was unharmed. So, what was the background to all of this? Why was Toomey so unpopular? We'll find out later that it was in fact a disagreement over land and money between two families related through marriage. But above all, why did the footprints of the assassin appear years later after his death on the very spot where he stood? And, despite all kinds of weather and even attempts to remove them, the footprints are still there to be seen. Donnie Murphy is from Inchintotan in Newmarket. He's the author of Men of the South and War of Independence. He's an historian who has meticulously researched this story for many years. He agreed to meet me, tell me the story, and take me to the site of the footprints. These footprints are on private property, and both Donny and I are grateful to landowner Paddy Angland for granting us permission to go on his land. After traversing through two muddy and boggy fields, we eventually arrived on the site of the footprints, surrounded by an electric fence. And Donny began by telling me that this is one story he just could not forget about. I'm nearly 40 years old. 1973, I came here and I just saw Prince. I had been here originally about, when I was a young lad, maybe about at about 12. But at that time, I only just saw a bunch of young lads and myself and we didn't make anything of it. But anyway, over the years, I came and went from them and I started picking up bits of stories and, and, and I walked away from it saying that I couldn't get nowhere. But anyway, I finally got the date of the footprints. I started doing more inquiring. Now I have enough to do a very good book and I have no doubt in the world but there will be a film done on this yet and it is definitely one of the wonders of the world because everything that could be done has been done to move these prints and they have always reappeared again. It's a story, I, I presume, that once you get your, your claws into it, you just can't let go. No, there's no way because uh, you have to come to the end of it when you see that like there is too much folklore and too much legend and too much untrue stories circulating around about this event because the amount of stuff that has been said and done and then when you look when you start researching you'll find that there's not a shred of evidence to back it up whereas I found that it happened and I found the murder report the inquest report and the arrest of the young man that was of Con Keefe who was arrested for it and I found then the background to it. Uh, this is a very tragic story for simple fact that James Rourke, who lost his life here on the 28th of July, 1888, was a married man with one child. And at the time, there was no such thing as any kind of benefits from the state. A woman was on her own. If 
she had no husband she had no support and uh, this happened really you have to go back to 1856 to get the start of this this is a story the origins of which are embedded in land and in money when such is the case a solution that's to everybody's satisfaction isn't always possible at the time patrick Toomey married ellen shine of glashagreen lean he was coming into a bit of land in a place called Fylanohig, King Williamstown, which is now Ballet Desmond. And he was supposed to bring money. But Tommy promised the money all right, but the wedding went ahead. And once once he was inside the door, he didn't bring any money, he didn't pay the money. And the Shines tried to get the money off him, but they failed. At the time, Timothy Shine was 11 years of age. Over the years, Timothy Shine was observing the way Tommy was doing so well on the land. So in 1877 to 1878, somewhere around there, Timothy Shine went to Toomey and he borrowed money from him and he promised to pay it back in five years. But he done what's in law called the Kerry Sheen. He didn't, when the five years were up, Timothy Shine claimed he didn't owe him the money as he had worked on in the meantime and he was putting one against the other. Toomey sent him a solicitor, that feelings got very bad between them and Toomey sent him a solicitor letter and Shane ignored it, and Tommy sent another one threatening court. These were extremely tough times. To resolve an argument, legal action may or may not have been resorted to. If it was and it failed, there was an alternative, and Shine opted for it. Then Shane went to the action group, which was the people who used to enforce the law in the area. They were lying to themselves. If the action groups decided that the moonlighters were required, they'd request that the moon, that, that, that person be moonlighted. So Toomey was warned to lay off a shine. In the meantime, the Coercion Act was passed by the English government to enforce law in Ireland and to make sure that the, the landlords were paid their rent. And then the Persecution Act was passed a few years afterwards, giving the police sweeping powers that anybody who, in, this, in the opinion of a district inspector, was guilty of a crime could be jailed for 18 months without trial. So anyway, Toomey decided he was going to take court action against Shine, and by now he had police protection. He was guarded by two constables night and day, and he took the court action, and the judge awarded his £20 plus costs and expenses against Shine. Shine ignored that again, he didn't pay. And the next thing, Toomey went back into court to get an ejection order against Shine and have him evicted from the land. Shine was duly evicted. Then the action group decided that Toomey was to be boycotted. That meaning that nobody would speak to him or nobody would work for him. Now, a man called James Rourke used to work from time to time for Toomey. So Toomey gave Rourke some of the mountain that he had seized from Shine and Rourke built what's known as a thatched Bahan house in it, a mud wall cabin in it, and he moved in there to live. From that moment on, Rourke's fate was more or less sealed. Well, the young man who was selected to pull the trigger, or triggers in this case as a shotgun and revolver had been used, is reputed to have died in America 31 years later. On the day we recorded the first programme, the footprints left by the gunman where he stood and shot Rourke 125 years previously were still there, despite many natural and man-made attempts to remove them down through the years. There have been many accounts of this intriguing story, but as you heard Donnie Murphy tell me earlier, many of whom were totally incorrect. Donnie's 40 years of research has now resulted in a true account. 
Doney told me at the time that because of the amount of research he had put into this story, he felt that the onus was now on him to make the true account available to the public. Then people can look back in it in years to come and they can, the papers at the time reported it, thanks be to God, because if this hadn't been reported at the time, I would not have been able to give a date for it. Or because there's no headstone up for this man in Clonfert. He was a poor man. As you know, a lot of poor men that him were just thrown into a grave and that was the end of them because they didn't count. But suddenly, when the prince appeared, they started talking again about it. And a huge amount of journalists, uh, research students, and a lot of folklorists and historians and everybody have tried it. But I don't know, for some reason, I was the man that finally got the story right. I can stand over what I'm saying and it is not a figment of my imagination. By accepting mountain land from and working for the boycott at Toomey, James Rourke was now in trouble. However, there was still time for him to escape his imminent punishment at the hands of the local action group. In May of that year, an overzealous bog ranger named Quinn was shot dead in Rathmore in County Kerry. Rourke was given visible signs that a similar fate was awaiting him. So in the end of June, when Toomey's hair was getting ready to be cut, one morning... When Rourke got up and was leaving for wherever he was going, from his mud wall cabin, he got a bit of a fright when he saw on the door a replica of a coffin, a black cross and five shillings. Instead of he putting the five shillings into his pocket, which was about two days' wages for a good-sized man at the time, he ran as hard as he could to Glashakwinian police station. There was a man watching him who was able to report all back to the action group. That night, the action group met again, and they decided that they would give him one test, a real test, that they would name five houses where there was guns to see would there be action. And within a week, the five houses were raided. The action group met again, and by now, Rourke had two his hair cut. So it was decided that he'd have to die. The next problem for the action group was who was going to shoot him. So they decided... As David McAuliffe was a man that was in no kind of trouble with the police or was not involved in the action group or any kind of a landing or anything in the area, a man that would not come under suspicion by the police. For as far as they knew, Rourke was getting clearance from the police before he'd worked in the farm. So McAuliffe was, was approached and he was told to engage Rourke to cut his hair and when he would have the date to report back to the man who told him. He, McAuliffe duly obliged as he had no choice or if he didn't he'd be boycotted himself or maybe shot. Then the Odunohu family who were living in Lord Cox's hunting lodge were approached and they were told the action group wanted the lodge for the night of the 27th of July as they wanted to hold an American wake there. Now the McAuliffe's, the Odunohu's like the McAuliffe's had no other choice but to but, but to obey, because if they didn't, they'd get whatever treatment the action group decided to meet out on. This evening, on Where the Road Takes Me, we look back at when we brought you the original story of the Glownamukla footprints. We also look back on the updated version that we broadcast a year or two later, but also this evening we bring you the conclusion of this intriguing story. Despite attempts by man and Mother Nature to remove these footprints where the gunman stood over 130 years ago, they have still remained embedded into the ground. Almost to the day, it's been 132 years since the shooting took place in Launamukla. The prediction made by a priest sometime later that the footprints would last for 100 years has now expired. The time to discover if the footprints have vanished, as was predicted, is right now. The story, the updated version, and the conclusion of the footprints of Launamukla continues in part two of Where the Road Takes Me on C103 in a few moments. It's part two of Where the Road Takes Me, and this evening, the story of the Glownamukla footprints. 
the original story and the updated version, already broadcast on Where the Road Takes Me. But this evening, we bring you the conclusion to this intriguing story, 132 years exactly since the shooting took place. Well, the O'Donoghue family, who lived in a hunting lodge owned by Lord Cox and who, like McAuliffe, had never come to the attention of the police, were approached and told to have their house made available on a certain date for an American wake. But this would prove to be an American wake with a frightening difference. Members from action groups from Kilmallock, Mallow, Boherbui, Canturk, Castle Island and Cordell were invited. These were all areas where their intended victim, James Rourke, had previously worked. Forty straws were then produced at this American wake. Thirty-four long and six short straws. The six people who drew the short straws would engage in a game of cards. A free ticket to America awaited the winner. But before the winner could set foot on ship he had the gruesome task of killing James Rourke. The trip to America was won eventually by a young man of 18 who was not from the area, may I add. He was working with a farmer near Cullen. He was working at Casey's near Cullen, who Arnagui, I think is the place, and Casey had married Hannah Shine in 1863. So anyway, that night, it was a great night of drink and dancing and everything, but... There was a young man from the market who wanted to go home, Peter McCarthy. At about one o'clock, Peter decided he'd take off home because he was going that they'd be at here in the morning and he wanted a bit of a sleep. But he found the house was guarded by the action group. He was sent, he was put back in again. He was put, he was made to stay inside in the house until morning. At seven o'clock in the morning, Rourke turned up for work to cut the hair with McAuliffe. And at about ten past seven, they spotted a young man coming in their direction. He jumped up in the ditch and he demanded their names. McAuliffe said who he was, that he was David McAuliffe. And Rourke said he was John Fleming, who was the farmer across the road. And the young man told Rourke to get out from, get out from behind McAuliffe, to stand there and... Rourke shyly done it, and then he threatened the young man with the police sergeant in Glash, who was a good friend of his, and the young man blasted him with the shotgun, jumped off the ditch, as he was as Rourke was now mourning, and pumped the contents of the revolver into him, and said, if that didn't finish you, this will. Uh, McAuliffe, when he came to his senses, as he got a deadly fright, of course, which, which is only needless to say, he ran into the house, and he sent the servant girl down to Fleming's. Fleming jumped on his horse and rode as hard as he could to Boharbuy for the priest and doctor. In the meantime, McAuliffe tackled his horse as Rourke said he wanted to go home to his wife and he loaded him up and he took him down there to where is now the, the cross near Fire School turned up to the left up that road and somewhere up there along the priest and doctor met him. By now he was very weak. I am told that water ran out through his guts. Some woman gave him a drink of water before that. The priest met him anyway and he reminded him. And the priest asked him who shot him. He said, Father, I don't know. But I will leave him to God. Now, this is an intriguing story of all the things that I've ever seen in my life. It has been a story that has been kept very secret over the years as nobody have been too welcome into the place. And I'm very grateful for Paddy England for leaving us in here today. It's July 28, 1888. James Rourke was dead, and the young man who shot him was more than likely heading for America. Donny Murphy is convinced that guilty or not guilty, the police would have attempted to pin the murder of O'Rourke on a man by the name of John Twiss. 
Twiss, by all accounts, was a marked man, and on the 9th of February, 1895, was hanged for a crime he did not commit. But on this occasion, the murder of James Rourke could not be laid at the feet of Twiss. Trish was an marked man. He had done some daring moonlightings. No doubt in the world about it. He was a very, very brave man. And uh, he was an marked man. The, 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 poli- the, the police wanted to get, to get him fair or foul. And uh, they got him for the Glengarry murder, but they would have undoubtedly would have got him because he was, there would have been a link between him and the Rooks. For in, in 1879, he got a month, Trish got his first month in jail for burning Enrique Hay belonged to Rook's brother. Rook's brother was a gamekeeper for Lord Vintry. He had caught Twish hunting in Lord Vintry's estate and he was fined and saw Twish being the wild young man he was. He said he'd burn his reek here. And uh, so there would have been a definitely a motive. The, 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 they definitely would have, mixed, would have been charged with that murder. An interesting side story to all of this concerns a Father Timothy Donoghue who was curate in Newmarket at this time. Father Donoghue made two predictions one of which has already come true. When he was a curate in the market, around 94, 95, John Twish was arrested for a murder he didn't commit in Glenora. While he was awaiting execution, Father Dunhu, the young curate, gave a hard-cutting sermon off the altar in the market, asking the men to be men and come forward and admit their guilt and let a young, innocent man go free. They didn't heed his words. Twish was executed in court jail on the 9th of February, 1895. And again, Father Dunhoe decided he'd give a hard-cutting sermon off the altar, which he stated clearly that from today and today's seven years, they'll be whipped from the face of the earth, and all three were dead within the seven years. Some people may be shocked at the brutality of events during the land war, and they are no doubt correct. But many historians remind us that the land war would never have been won without the ruthlessness involved. Well, during the first programme broadcast on this story on Where the Road Takes Me seven years ago, historian and author Donnie Murphy brought me to the site of the shooting, which again is on private land and meant we had to get permission, obviously, to enter. I was surprised at how visibly evident the footprints were and how they stood out in this field. They looked as if they had been burned into the ground. The first recording here failed to materialise for some strange reason, and I had to return a second time to record again with Donny. Well, they're size nine foot. That's what I, what I, what I have found out that they are. If I put a size nine foot into them to find out. The footprints are here since roughly somewhere between 1919 and 1921 because there was somewhere around that there was a, P, a PP in a market, a father of John, father John who. Timothy Dunhoe, who was in the market from February 1918 until November 1921. He died in. And he made a prediction that they would last a hundred years from that time because when th- th- they appeared after the young man who done the shooting is supposed to have died in a fire in New York. Now, that can never be established, I don't think, because he went to America under an assumed name. And uh, he served in the American Army and he served in the New York Fire Service. That's what I believe, because there was a man from Wheeling 
and John McAuliffe from Wheeling, who knew him in America. And he's dead since 1958, that was the story he used to But anyway, the prince appeared, and every kind of an attempt was made possibly blessing him and pray- prayers and people running and doing rounds around him and doing this and that. But any of the priests, they the, the, the the, stayed there in all kinds of weather up in the ditch. Then somewhere way back, about 60 years ago, a priest uh, is supposed to have dug him up and uh, he got pains on the bones, as far as I believe, out of it. And he didn't come back there no more and the prince reappeared again. Then over time, the ditch, there was just a little bit, a, bit of a small bit of the ditch standing at the stairs. The ditch was knocked at both sides, but a small bit was left and a bull knocked more of it, so the farmer levelled it. He decided it was the best thing to do with it because it was, that, that would stop for us coming looking at it. But to his great amazement, when the grass grew, the prince appeared again. Not one bit of grass grew where they were. And they're there to this day, as plain as could be. You know, a long number of years ago, that was as long as I can remember, there's wire around them. There's four poles and there's two rows of wire and there's electric current going into them to keep cattle out from them. And I saw them. I comes there fairly often from time to time, maybe three or four times a year at least anyway. And I always say a, a, a prayer when I come there and decorate the rosary. But St. Stephen's Day happens to be my birthday, and in, in, it, it fell on a Sunday in 2004. And I decided I'd give a call to the prince, and there was a nice, a, 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 a nice fall of snow. I drove back anyway, and to my, it was the most beautiful scene going to see the prince there sitting inside in the snow. There was another time, another time, we were coming to the prince, and uh, and my son came with me, he's Jared, he's now 28, and uh, we brought it, he, he brought his little dog, and the dog was on a lead. And about 20 yards out from the prince, the dog stopped dead. And Jorrit picked up the dog anyway, of course, being... And the dog stiffened up and got violent. He had to be left go. And when he was left go, he ran as hard as he could to the car. So, like, whatever is there, it is something uh, magical or whatever it is. Some, but it's definitely a sign from God. And uh, of all the great people that was killed, it's hard to believe it, that it's, it was the murder of a labourer and a young boy who was wanting to get away from the dire poverty he was existing as a farm labourer and got to America, that is his prince, appeared on that ditch and appears now on the ground. So maybe Father Dunhu is right, they may go away around 2020, maybe he's wrong. Well, all that was broadcast in our first story on the footprints back in 2013. A year later, I was back in Dlaunamukla again to meet Donny. Bearing in mind that he had put 40 years of research into this story, he felt that there was more to be unearthed, and there was. In the second edition of the story, broadcast in 2014 on Where the Road Takes Me, Donny was able to identify the young man who shot James Rourke. Con Barry was, just happened to be a servant boy who was working at Casey's. Now, Casey's wife was a sister of Teddy Shine, and she was a sister to Toomey's wife also, who was the boycotted farmer. I mean, it was it got really bitter. Definitely, I suppose, we all know the family disputes are worse than any other dispute, because they, they get entrenched. Whereas another dispute, people will walk away, and they have nothing to do with each other, they no blood relation. But in a family dispute, they get really bitter towards each other. And in this case, I mean, Tommy, definitely he had to be wrong because he didn't bring in the money and yet he slipped an IOU into the bit of money he gave Teddy Shane. And that, to Timothy Shane, I mean, that was Teddy Shane's father. And he slipped a bit of a note in there stating an IOU which is legally binding inside any court once he got that in. And he was warned and instead of he walking away, 
he insisted in getting shot into court. It took him from 1882 to 1885 to get him there. He had to wait until the Second Coercion Act, which gave the police sweeping powers that they could detain anybody for 18 months without trial. I mean, it was a very harsh regime. I mean, the word of a policeman, and if the, when he picked off, the, off, the, off of his street, off his farm or his shop or wherever he may be, and he'd be put into prison without trial. He would not be allowed any legal representation or anything that could ever declare him a danger to society and he'd be locked up on, on the ward of, of the police chief in the area. So in the case of Con Barry, mm-hmm. I mean he was a young man who left his employment in KCC on a Friday evening mm-hmm didn't realise what was in front of him, what he had to do. He had no, he had no, he, he had no choice. And or, then that he would be heading for America almost immediately. Or case, or case he didn't know either. Yeah. Because nobody knew. It was at three o'clock in the morning when they were called to this big room where the action group chief in the area arrived, was, was standing. And he started pulling and another man stood alongside him with 40 straws, we, rushes, we, we call them straws. And it was the men who pulled the six shot straws that played the game of cards. There was 34 long straws. And then there's various different stories told, but nobody will ever know because that all did long ago. What actually transpired? But anyway, the, the, the holy all of it is that Con Barry ended up having to pull the trigger. If Con Barry did not do what, what, what he was ordered to do, he'd be shot himself because he'd have to be. If, the, if they had organised this massive party called an American Week and brought people from several de- uh, from a wide area of Cork, Kerry and Limerick all to assemble and to select six people and to select the one person then end up with it as it was a knockout system starting with six and ending with two and the loser had to shoot James Rourke. And that was taken from our second programme on the Footprints, broadcast back in 2014. It's now 2020, the year that Father Timothy O'Donoghue predicted back in 1920 that the Footprints would vanish from the grounds in Glownamukla. We are two days away from the 132nd anniversary of the shooting, which happened on Saturday morning, July 28, 1888. Have the Footprints vanished as Father O'Donoghue said they would? Well, you'll have to stay with us for part three, after the break, to find out. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. 
you really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. From the original story, broadcast seven years ago, to an updated version a year later on Where the Road Takes Me, we now arrive at the all-important year 2020, the year that Father Timothy O'Donoghue predicted 100 years ago that the footprints would disappear. So should this bring a conclusion to this tragic and at times eerie story? Well, it's doubtful, because there are so many unanswered questions, some of whom will never be answered. Historian and author Doni Murphy from Ancient Totan near Newmarket has dedicated over 40 years of research to the story, and he questions why the action group went about shooting Rourke in this manner, and thus involving two innocent families. He also has sympathy for Rourke's predicament. Yes, that's the point. I see the point. Like, you, you have great sympathy for. I, I obviously you have great sympathy for Rourke, but see the point is he was like a man swimming against the tide. What he was doing, and he was only one of many that done it. If you swim against the tide, you wouldn't swim far. As anybody knows, because the tide is fairly strong, it's whipped down the channel fairly fast, you'll be gone. And exactly, that's exactly what Rourke was trying to do, because, well, see, what, I, what I've asked myself several times, why, oh, why, did they do it this way? Why didn't they just shoot him outside in the mountain? While he was living, I was living outside the Tashbahan, outside in the mountain, which is now planted, that big high trees there. It's strange that they choose to bring the McAuliffe's and they don't know who's in it. Like, why did they choose? I don't know why they chose it, because I said the main reason they chose it was the only explanation I can come up with is that they failed to get a volunteer, and they wanted to get, to put up a prize of a ticket to America, and that's how they got the young fella. But what happened to Con Barry after he had shot James Rourke? Well, his fare was paid to America, where a job awaited. His family at home were looked after financially. But tracking him down in America was a difficult job for Donnie Murphy. Con Barry went to America and he worked for Casey's Construction, which was a brother of Casey's the Cullen. And then, whether he was drafted or not, I do not know, but he joined the American Army. And after military service, he joined the New York Fire Service and he was killed in a fire in New York. Now, the problem of tracking down Con Barry is very hard because he was working under an assumed name, only for he being known in America by George Taden McAuliffe from Comer, from Nakakumar who died in 1958. I wouldn't ever know anything about him, but he was, that was, Judd Hayden always said that he knew Con Barry in, in, in New York, and he got burned in a fire in 1920, around that time. And the following morning, his footprints appeared in the ditch at McAuliffe's, where he had stood the morning he'd done the shooting. Well, now, I've been told lately by Bridget Jones, who is a, uh, a daughter of Con Mac. She'd be a, grand, a, a granddaughter of this David McAuliffe. And wh- what she says is right. The footprints, when they reappeared, 
they didn't turn for Mac's house. They're turning down for the road. It's a strange like. They are, they're actually pointing down now. Originally, they were pointing back for the house. But when the ditch was, was flattened out, it says down out about seven inches, roughly. There's about seven inches of a hump in the field, roughly. And the prints are, are not turning from Max's house. They're turning down for the road. Because on the morning of the shooting, he had to be facing from Max's house because there was a ditch running down there where the footprints are. They, that can be shown by the map, by the old map. So we've we've another six years to go to determine whether Father O'Donoghue's correct, prediction yeah. was correct. Yeah. Well, it, it, he he made a number of predictions, and he on that Sunday in Tower in nineteen in in nineteen twenty he was after being called to bless the footprints, and uh, Father O'Donoghue was a hard cutting man. He he blessed the footprints in front of a number of people, and he he walked away, said nothing. He left it to the pulpit where he was able to cut loose, and he predicted that there would be a shortage of priests in time and he also predicted the footprints would last 100 years and he, he also said that Tower Church was a church, church built on lies because it was actually in the townland of Glynamukla and he said, is it possible some people can spill it? So to recap, the shooting took place on July 28, 1888. The anniversary is next Tuesday. Con Barry, who had no choice but to shoot James Rourke, immediately left for America. His prize, if you could call it that, was a single ticket to the land of the free. According to Donnie Murphy, Con Barry lost his life fighting a fire in America 32 years later, in 1920. Soon afterwards, the footprints appeared on the ditch where he stood on that fateful morning in 1888. Despite all efforts by man and weather to remove these footprints, they have remained, or when destroyed, returned again soon afterwards. In 1920, Father Timothy O'Donoghue arrived at the site and blessed it. When he got his opportunity to be heard later while on the pulpit, he predicted that the footprints would last for 100 years. That time has now elapsed, and we can now discover if another one of Father O'Donoghue's predictions have turned out to be true. fading away, you could say, gradually, but at the present moment, they're not visible. But there's no grass after growing where there was, but there is, I was there this morning, there's moss in the ground, and uh, there's a few rushes around the place, but they're not where the footprints were. And I know that when I was with you last, a number of years ago, and when we recorded that initial program, the footprints were quite visible, and it was as if the footprints were burned into the yes, ground. That's correct. That's, yeah. what, that's what an old man told me years ago, that he, he was told... He was told by the man who saw them first, who saw them at the early stage, who was a fellow called Dennis McAuliffe. He'd be a brother of the man who owned the farm. He never married. He was there. Dean Mack, as we used to call him. That's what they used to call him there. I remember him when he, when he was old. He stated that the sound like that they, when they appeared first, they were, like they were both being burned into the ditch. And it was found out sometime later that Con Barry had got burned to death in a fire in New York when he was fighting as a fireman. The man who done the shooting, well, he was set up. He, he had no choice yet. There'd be no blame on Con Barry because most likely if he hadn't done the shooting, he'd be shot himself. If people have time... I, I made time of it. I don't think I, I was a farmer, and I but I still made time to go back and find the old papers in the archives. And there's a huge amount of stories like of this. But of all the shootings and of all the beatings and all the, the savage murders, not a sign exists anywhere. Only this one. I know it's fading away, but we we better be careful. There's no guarantee that that that, that they won't reappear again because they, they were damaged several times. Like Father O'Callaghan, 
of this game. He was a missionary placed out somewhere and he came back with he, he had good intentions, the man. And he he blessed them and he, he dug them up and he he was taking this sitting in the air to get it and to get it scientifically analysed. I do not know did he ever get that far because after whatever's in the footprints he got a bad knockout, like a bad pains in the bones and everything and he never again appeared there. It's amazing how natural elements and man-made attempts to get rid of these footprints. Like, as, as I have clearly stated in the book, Father O'Callaghan dug him up first, then a bull attacked him, then a sow attacked him, and finally Davy Mack, Bobby Gutton, he leveled him out because he was sure that he'd be deemed him with the man I, he was in bad health he was there for a long time after us. Mm. He ended up in hospital. I remember seeing him in hospital because I was in the scene and to mine. He was there as well. And have you, have you, I know you've been up at the site on numerous occasions, have you ever experienced, experienced anything strange up there yourself? No. People warned me years ago that something bad would happen to me. <laughs> See, like, what I do is when I go to the footprints, I always blesses myself and I say a few prayers. I says maybe a decade of the rosary or something. And nothing has ever happened to me anyway. I was told a great story years ago by the late, the late Stevie O'Donoghue, who was dead now. I think two years, one of these, I don't know, is it today or one of these days? But Stevie, don't know who, who everybody knew well, was a dinner muckler man. He ended up inside in the market in Murphy's place. He went astray one night coming from some place. He was coming up from Blasher Green Lane, up to his own place in Glenna and he went astray. And he told me if he got all Ireland, he wouldn't go into that field, which was only across the road from him, in the middle of the night. And for the bad, wet, stormy night, and he told me Stevie was a very honest man, he told me that it was as calm as could be inside that field. My son, Gerald, who is a good genealogist and he's an engineer down in Waterford, he made contact with the great-grandchildren of James Rourke. They got the book and everything out in Boston and they were very pleased it was done. Because I state in the, in the, end, of, the end of the story that there's a good possibility that it, Rourke wasn't the, wasn't the informer. You see, there were so many different people around and nobody could say who really was the informer which, who informed and what, what, what I mean by the informer was the five houses in Blush that were searched for guns and it was down in James Rourke that, that was he informed. But was, was he the only person told about those, those houses? See, that's the big question. He was talked about it, yes, by all means. He was talked about it, but how many more was talked about it? Like, that's the, how many more knew about it? And I suppose, you know, from Rourke's point of view as well, you know, he had a wife and a young child. Yeah. Like, there, there, were, there were deadly times, and there's no good in saying, but the truth, like, I came across some savage cases, actually. I mean, Col- was it Colster was his name? He was the landlord back around Mill Street area. He was savage. I mean, he was only paying him a few, a few, a few pence a day. And I mean, some of them were working on roads and everything that I'm working on farms, and they were hardly able to stand. I mean, to, to the frightening, like, I, like the, the amount of stuff that's stored in the archives that will probably be never touched is, is, is massive.
footprints of Clonabucla, is that it now as far as you're concerned for you, Donny? They're gone now or they're almost gone at this stage? Well, as I said earlier on, if it's on the tape, I said we cannot say, John, because I'll tell you what I saw. Like, I mean, I was told the story by the late Timmy Buckley, but they got him, he, he died six months after telling me that I called Timmy Buckley's house behind in file. He said one Sunday, his uncle Jolly, who came down through the field from Tower, he was living in Tower, and he'd gone down a couple of miles to see his, to visit his sister, who was Mrs. Buckley. And he ran in the door, he said, Jolly was a young man that him. He ran in the door. They're gone, he said. No more footprints. Just Timmy and they went up and he went to see, and they were after being dug up, he told me. Timmy Buckley, a file. Everybody knew Timmy, he was a nice man. And um, he told me a story the same Sunday. He, he, was, he wasn't well himself, he was in poor health, but he, he was very helpful to me. He told me his brother was in the American Army during World War II, and he was telling the story to soldiers as, in some place. And a bunch of them came back to see the footprints. And they were hard men, they had been in several battles and everything, and they could not believe it until they saw it. I mean, several people over the years, like, and I mean, like, I don't make up stories. I get this, I, I research this. And I get the story. And it's up there for anybody to watch it, to see it on YouTube or anything. For the, the, Tony Kennedy, a, far, a former priest, he became a teacher afterwards. He rang me one day and he asked me, would I do a YouTube, a YouTube with him? Because he, but he said, I have no money to you. I said, I'm not interested in money. So he came out and we're at, we've, we've, I think we've both, I don't know, I'm not quite sure what, what is at the moment. But the last time I checked, this was around 8,000 of a hits anyway. There's definitely people having interest in it anyway. Like hopefully, we, I, I, I've been going that far and I'm going that far. 47 years constant. I went there first to the young dad about in 1960 when the bunch of us we went back one Sunday to see it. Then I didn't go again until I was 24 in 1973. I am now 71 and I will keep going there and I'll keep watching it and if it, if it changes again I'll, I'll be back to you. And so it's a case of wait and see but for the moment it seems that the prediction of Father Timothy O'Donoghue 100 years ago was correct. The footprints have faded away rather than being destroyed. Tuesday next is the 132nd anniversary of the shooting, so why not say a silent prayer for all concerned? Donny Murphy's book is entitled The Footprints and Local Land War Events. It costs €15 and is available from Donny himself at Inchintotan Newmarket. This evening, Doc Martin was in sound. Thanks, Doc, and welcome aboard. Thank you for sharing time with us. So until Sunday evening next at 7, from myself, John Green, have a good, safe and healthy week. Goodbye for now. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.